This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 25th of May 2015. On today's show, freelancers working nearly for free, regional news outlets shutting their doors and the controversial Cardinal. Joining me in the studio is Jenny Noyes, writer and producer at Daily Life. Hi Jenny. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And we are joined on the phone by ABC reporter and anchor Oscar Subakti. Hello Oscar. Hi, great to be here. And also freelance writer who contributes to Vice and Guardian Australia, Denim Sadler. Hi, Denim. Hi, thanks for having me. To have your say on the issues that we're discussing today, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is at Fourth Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Now, today, respected journalist Tracy Spicer revealed on social media that she was asked to write a branded content column at a rate of 14 cents per word. The column was meant to be about women's financial empowerment, of all things. Her post has sparked a discussion about not only what freelancers are getting paid, but the extent to which they are being commissioned to write branded content for media outlets. In her words, does anybody else see the irony here? Who else is being asked to work for next to nothing in this brave new world of branded media? Exploitation, especially of women and young people, seems rife. Now, apparently the award rate for freelance writers is around 93 cents a word. Denim and Jenny, you've... um, both done or are doing freelance work. Are there many outlets that are actually paying 93 cents a word? I'll start with you, Jenny. When I've uh, done freelance writing, it's usually not paid by the word for digital uh, publications. So usually I find that you get you get paid sort of a set amount for the article and the word count, it doesn't really come into it so much. And I guess that's kind of what's happened here. Um, she's been offered, the going rate is just 140 bucks for the article, um, which is really low um, for a you know major media outlet, and particularly for branded content, which you know that's being paid for by an advertiser. So you know there's really no excuse for it. Denim, uh, were you surprised by this story? Um, no, I don't think I was surprised at all, and I think that kind of shows how bad it is at the moment for a lot of freelancers because that's kind of that's more than a lot of people would be paid and it's not it's a ridiculous rate like it's not good and um yeah i think that kind of plays to the bigger issue that people would take that and that kind of just plays makes the whole problem even worse i think yeah so are young people and especially young women being exploited the most in these situations that's what tracy was saying jenny uh, I definitely think that it's an issue for young writers um, and a lot of, you know, young women. Uh, I think particularly this instance, perhaps, um, because uh, Tracy writes about women's issues and sometimes maybe if you're writing about something that you're, is seen as a passion project, people think that you will just do it for free. 
So, you know, oh, it's something you care about. So, you know, you think it's an important issue, you want to write about it anyway, I'm just not going to pay you a proper amount. So I think that's probably a, a large part of what's going on here. Um, I do think young women um, can probably be exploited um, when they're, you know, early in their careers. You know, I think young people in general can. And I do think a lot of um, young women writers are getting a bit more awareness because we are talking about it more, about what their rights are and, you know, getting to that balance of learning how to demand what you deserve. All right. Well, and there was, there were, sorry to interrupt, no, go ahead. there was a, a similar case um, in terms of uh, young up-and-coming journalists uh, seemingly being exploited here in Melbourne at a, a radio station here where whereby they were interning and, and getting paid very, very low rates, but effectively they were doing the job of, say, a, a, staff, a staffed journalist. And so uh, I think that actually went to the, um, to the courts and they, were, uh, they ordered the radio station to, to pay these two young women, you know, what they deserved. So, um, yeah, it seems like it's not only confined to, to print, unfortunately. Yeah, um, no need to name any names, but would any of you like to share any more stories of your own from the freelance trenches, so to speak? Denim? Yeah, well, I think the, the, what you said before about the payoff kind of between doing something you're passionate about or I suppose when you're coming out of uni as a graduate, you need that exposure. Now, a lot of places are kind of going with the argument that the exposure is your payment, which is not, it's not going to pay your rent, you know, it's not what you need. And yeah, that's something, especially internships as well, as well, like a huge problem. Just so hard, like a paid internship is pretty much unheard of from what I've seen. And you kind of have to go through these, this period of not getting paid for anything you're doing to kind of get a footing into the industry. And that's nearly impossible for a lot of people, I think. Um, I also think that um, there's not enough information out there and there's no... Uh kind of set amount that people it's really hard to negotiate a decent pay and also be able to ex, to know what you should expect yeah because um, it seems like there's a bit of a an idea like oh if you don't want to do it it's easy to find someone else who'll do it for this yeah. or even less and when you're young and you don't know what the going rates are you know and and I think one of the issues that's been highlighted with this is that uh the minimum amount is not necessarily realistic to what people can expect, but you don't know, like, at what point do you, what, at what point is, is there a reasonable expectation that you'll get paid a certain amount? Um, it's really hard to be able to say as a freelancer what your experience is, what you're bringing to the situation, and what you should expect to be paid when media outlets have such vast differences um, and, and different kind of ways of working out how much they're going to pay um, each writer for each individual uh, article that they're writing. Um, it can be really uh, tough to navigate that system. Well, let's hope that um, Tracy's words today open up a bit of a discussion about that. But it wasn't just about the amount that writers are getting paid. The actual nature of creating branded um, branded content does kind of raise some different issues. It's potentially messing with the traditional separation of church and state, i.e. sales and editorial. Is it just what media outlets are going to have to do to survive in the current climate? And if so, who is going to write it? Oscar, what do you think? Yeah, it is an interesting um, phenomenon that we're experiencing now, isn't it? As we know, 
media outlets are facing all these financial pressures. But uh, I think, you know, obviously being at the ABC, that's not an issue for us. But in terms of looking at the media landscape generally, so long as the consumer is made aware of the fact that it is um, branded content and it is uh, being sponsored by a particular company, I think that, that I think, removes that ethical issue there, so long as there's full disclosure. So, you know, and th- then it's up to the, the reader to decide whether or not they, they want to read that, I guess. And hopefully media outlets will, will realise, you know, just how much branded content people are prepared to take. So um, I guess it's a, you know, at this stage it's a wait and see approach because it is a relatively new thing that we're seeing in the mainstream media outlets at the moment. You're on Fourth Estate on 2SCR. I'm Lucy Robson and I'm joined by Daily Life's Jenny Noyes, the ABC's Oscar Subakti and freelance journalist Denim Sadler. Last Thursday, journalists at regional network WINS newsroom in Mildura in northwest Victoria were shocked to hear that their bureau would be closing. It's not the only one. WIN have also announced that they will be closing their bureau in Mackay in North Queensland. And it comes as regional publishing heavyweight APN announces that they will be putting their news behind a paywall, much like we've seen from the Herald and the Australian in the cities. Do you think that regional audiences will be willing to pay for content that is relevant to them, Oscar? Well, if they're left with no other choice but to do so, unfortunately, they, they, it might they may be forced to. I think um, it's unfortunate that it's come to that, but uh, we, I think a lot of us take for granted that uh, media or journalism is free, but um, I think that's the debate the industry is having at the moment is, you know, at, at which point are people prepared to pay? But it would be unfair if, if the only available uh, journalism to, the only journalism available rather to the regions is, is paid content. So, I don't know. It is a tricky one, and um, it's probably a result of of there being uh, less diversity in the regions in the first place. But uh, from a a consumer's point of view in the regions, I would hope that um, paid journalism isn't the only uh, option available to them. But um, again, as we've seen with the the, um, phenomenon of of the paywall, there are people who are prepared to pay for journalism. so I guess it's one of those things where you'll have to judge the market and, and see what people are prepared to pay for. Well, regional communities do still have the ABC, thankfully, um, even though a couple of different um, stations were closed in the last year or so. Mm. Um, but how do you think it can affect regional communities when news outlets aren't around to tell the stories, like their stories and stories that are relevant to them? Well... I think we've seen that increasingly with um, the regional TV networks, aren't we? The fact that um, they may be broadcasting in a particular regional market, but the headquarters is somewhere, you know, in a completely different town altogether. I think um, it it would inevitably affect um, the stories that are being told if people don't have boots on the ground, so to speak, telling their stories. it makes it hard to get those those uh, local stories that are important to the people in a particular suburb or town, doesn't it? So, um, sadly, you know, with with less resources out there, um, they're just not the same amount of stories are just not going to be able to be told. And perhaps that's where uh, 
the whole idea of citizen journalism may may arise. But as we know, um, citizen journalism is very different to to other types of journalism. So uh, you would hope that something could fill that void, but uh, it won't be like for like, unfortunately. Denham, have you spent any time in the country? Yeah, I have, actually. I did a, a pretty short placement out at, um, at the Border Mail in Wodonga, and I, I think, like, I got more out of that than probably a year of my uni course. Like, I think graduates are always told to kind of go out into the country for a year. That's where you get your experience and, like, your foot in the door, and that's kind of becoming more and more impossible, I think, with all these cuts and closures, and that's kind of another option, making it life even a bit harder for graduates, I think. And, like, those, those regional newsrooms are so often, like, breeding grounds. You see so many people go into, like, the big metro papers and TV stations that start off regionally. And, like, that looks like that's becoming less and less of an option for us, I think, which could have a big impact on journalism in general as well. Well, not only as training grounds for journalists who might one day move to the cities, why do you think it's important for communities to have their own outlets? I think you can't kind of just come into a community and tell their stories. I think you kind of have to be there and be involved in the community and actually know how it works to properly tell the stories, I think, and to get the actual stories. You kind of need to be a part of more part of a community. If you've got newsrooms coming in from so far away to try and tell one story, I don't think you're going to get the full picture at all that's relevant to the community. Particularly when you're breaking um, stories about stuff like corruption, you know, environmental problems, um, business, industry, these sorts of questions are really, it's really important to be involved in the community. It's something that might not come to light if it's left up to metro journalists, you know. Often it's it's the local journalists who um, might break that news in the first place and then it might turn into a national story. So, you know, without those local journalists do, like you know on the ground doing that work fi- like finding those stories following those you know initial leads um, you know we might not have these stories that are really often of national importance exposed. Yeah that makes sense there shouldn't necessarily be a divide between you know metropolitan and rural Australia there have been huge stories that are broken in rural Australia. Do you think we we living in the cities really kind of get enough of a sense of what goes on outside the major centres? I don't think we do, really. Um, You know, Australia is a huge place um, and more and more we're focused on the uh, the city, um, what's going on in the city and also what's going on internationally, you know. Um, I think we could all do with uh, hearing more stories about what's going on in other places um, outside of the metropolitan areas. You're listening to Fourth Estate on 2SER. I'm Lucy Robson and I'm joined by Daily Life's Jenny Noyes, the ABC's Oscar Subakti and freelance journalist Janam Sadler. The media in Victoria have been kept very busy by the Royal Commission into responses by institutions to child abuse. It's a tough job for reporters and the stories and testimonies from the Commission are no easy reading. But now, as attention has turned to Australia's foremost Catholic church figure, George Pell, The Age is having a tough time explaining how it posted the message, Die Pell, on Facebook to its more than 100,000 followers. Age editor Andrew Holden has said he believes it was a hacker who was behind the Die Pell post. 
but the posts otherwise seem to be ordinary enough. It linked to a story about Pell on the Ages website and the Die Pell message seems almost reminiscent of a very infamous typo in the weekend edition of the Financial Review sent to the printers last year. What are the odds that the Ages social media people scheduled the post before the final text was ready and just forgot to remove their crude message in time, Jenny? I think that's entirely possible. You know, when it comes to social media, there are many, many ways that things could go wrong um, accidentally, Um, especially when there are multiple people uh, with access to the account. You know, they might be run off their feet. Sometimes the nightmare that you hope will never happen, in fact, does happen. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I don't know hacking. I don't know if that's likely to be the issue or if, you know, I think it, it to me it read a lot like a terrible, terrible mistake. It's very embarrassing for everyone involved. Yeah, and in a way it's kind of got more coverage than the issues that the Royal Commission is trying to expose. Um, aside from the controversy over the ages Facebook comment, what stands out about the Australian media's coverage of the Royal Commission into child abuse? Oscar, do you think that the media is doing a good job of reporting these really serious issues? I think as a whole, yes, they have. Uh, it, it seems that many, well, most of the media outlets covering the Royal Commission have been quite accurate in their reporting of um, the events that happened in the Commission. They seem to have been quite sensitive to those testifying. And it does help that uh, there is that video feed, particularly for um, television purposes. And I I think, um, yeah, on on the whole, I think the media is doing a good job. And uh, I guess the whole point of the commission is for for people to be able to testify and finally have their um, their and finally be able to air their grievances. I guess Um, so. In terms of the amount of coverage it's been getting, I I think. um, there's been a good amount and I think it's on the whole been quite um, good good quality coverage as well. So I can't really think of any instances in which I thought any of the coverage was inappropriate. Um, so, so yeah, overall positive, I think. The National uh, Media Initiative Mindframe actually released guidelines on uh, the best ways to address issues to do with child abuse in the media. Do you think it's important that we continually review how we speak about uh, abuse and uh, trauma, Denim? Yeah, absolutely. You kind of have to... There's a real big fine line, I think, between kind of being... Obviously, you have to be respectful of these people who have gone through these awful things, but their stories need to be told as well, I think, to actually make a difference. But yeah, I think it is important to kind of be constantly looking at the, the guidelines and evolving them maybe, especially for kind of the digital media as well, which some of them aren't. But I think it's good to keep looking back at them, definitely. Would you agree with that, Oscar? Oh, for sure, yes. I think um, obviously this Royal Commission is historic and unprecedented. And so uh, as media outlets, we're all navigating how to cover it. And um, if there's any way in which we... Um, we could do better in terms of how we're reporting it. I think it's always welcome. And so constant feedback and review of how we report these sensitive stories, I think, is is always important. Last year on the show, uh, I spoke to Joanne McCarthy, the Newcastle Herald reporter who won a gold Walkley in 2013 for her coverage of 
child abuse in the churches in the Hunter Valley. Seeing as this issue has played out in such a big way in our regional centres, and just going back to uh, what Jenny was talking about before, isn't this exactly the sort of story where we need newsrooms in regional towns and regional centres uh, that the that are places that the Royal Commission has looked into? Absolutely. I would, uh, the Joanne McCarthy was one of the examples I had in mind when I was saying that. So, um, yes, absolutely. These sorts of community, you know, the, these stories uh, begin in a community and you're not going to find these sorts of things out unless you're talking to people um, and they have your trust. They're not, you know, some journalist that fires in from the big smoke is not necessarily going to be able to uncover this sort of thing and treat it with the sensitivity that's required. I think you were saying something similar to that before, Denham. Yeah, obviously, I completely agree with that. You kind of, you have to have a presence in the community, I think, more so than just flying in for the big commission. I think you have to have been there before and know the people and have their trust as well to fully tell the story, I think. Okay, well, moving on. In another story related to the separation of church and state, the Australian's media writer Sherry Markson has today alleged that Fairfax coverage of ICAC proceedings could have influenced the New South Wales government decision to pull large amounts of print advertisements for public sector jobs. Um, what Did anyone have any particular thoughts on this story? I thought it, uh, if, if that is the case, I think uh, it's... Uh, it's interesting and slightly disturbing, but I guess uh, there's nothing mandating the government to equally distribute um, its advertising budget. Um, but yes, uh, at this stage, I'm not quite sure if, if they've been able, to, the claims have been able to be substantiated. So um, yes, I, I think if if that is, if what Sherry Markson is saying is true, it, it is. It would be quite a petty move, but um, again, I think we, we have to wait to see what the truth actually is, don't we? I think also, um, you know, print job ads are not necessarily the way of the future. Um, it's, it's you know, more and more moving um, into the digital space. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that pulling ads from the print is a sign of anything. I don't know. It, it seems a little bit um, shaky. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I was and also, kind of surprised that there were so many job ads in the paper, to be honest. I guess that speaks to um, the fact that I haven't found a job from a newspaper for a really long time. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's quite likely that um, maybe they, they've just pulled the ads because they find that people are, you know, using... Um, other using digital uh, media to actually find their jobs because in my experience at least that is definitely how it's moving and um, perhaps uh, different advertisers would be more appropriate for the print newspapers. Denim, have you ever found a job from looking in a newspaper? No, I don't think I even have like flicked to the middle of the paper to even look at them. I think it's kind of something you, as like a young graduate you don't even think still exists even if it was, it's, yeah, it's obviously bad if it was because kind of revenge for journalists just doing their job, it seems kind of inevitable anyway that there's not going to be job ads in the paper for them much longer. It's definitely not how young people are going to find their next job. And I certainly don't think that uh, it's going to stop the journalists um, pursuing these sorts of issues that go to ICAC. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not sure what Shari's point 
was in that, uh, if she thinks that it's going to stop the journalists from doing their jobs. But um, I definitely uh, do not think that's the case. Well, newspapers are supposed to keep their journalists and their sales teams at a good distance, so companies can't influence these journalists by pushing and pulling their advertising money. But big advertisers like the government do spend enough money to employ many journalists. So can news organisations ever really insulate themselves from how advertisers spend their money? What do you think, Oscar? Well, probably not, is the the short answer, because... We just watching at TV news bulletins, for example, on the commercial networks. Um, you do still find stories related to some of the advertisers, and thankfully, they still uh, feel independent enough not to be um, not to be, I guess, censored in that way just because of a, a particular advertiser. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think. I mean, we, we live obviously in a world where uh, there are many private companies and many things happen to these companies. And so uh, an example that comes to mind is uh, the Nana's Berry uh, scandal, the, the contamination scare that happened. Now, if, if a network or an outlet were to not report on that story just because they had advertising with that company... Uh, not only would it be ethically eth- ethically wrong, but obviously it'd be uh, a it'd be a wrong thing to do by the community because this was had a great public interest element to it. So uh, I don't think we're at the stage yet where advertisers will dictate exactly what appears in the bigger media outlets, at least. So um, let's hope that we never see that happening. I also think it's, you know, there's a, there is a PR question, you know, the internet, uh, you know, there's social media, there are lots of other ways to get messages out and you can easily uh, catch someone out for if it appears that they're favouring a certain advertiser. Um, Mm. It's going to get talked about um, and it's not going to look good for the advertiser or the um, publication if it looks like... um, they're in cahoots on on, uh, on what's getting reported, so or they're being influenced. Um, so um, I think that's also an issue. Are there any situations in which a print advertisement might have an advantage over online classifieds in this day and age? Oh, I know. <laughs> just trying to think. Well, I'm, re- I'm just thinking back to when I um, was looking around for my first job, which was some years ago. I, I, at the time, looking out for cadetships and the traineeships in the paper was still a thing. (laughs) Um, But in terms of whether or not one would be more advantageous than the other, one medium that is, I can't really think of why why a print ad would be better than an online ad. Well, uh, just shows how times have changed, I suppose. Uh, That is actually all that we have time for. Thank you so much to my guests, Oscar Subakti from the ABC, freelance writer Denim Sadler and Jenny Noyes from Daily Life. You can listen to our podcast on 2SCR.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Fourth Estate is produced at the studios of 2SCR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Lucy Robson and we're back at the same time next week. Bye.